0: This week we pick back up in our sermon series on the book of Jonah. At this point in the story, Jonah has received a call from the Lord, from Yahweh, to go to Nineveh, the hated enemy of all things good, right, and moral, and to call them to repentance. Jonah, uh, he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to go where God has called him. He doesn't want God to have any reason to save his people. And so he runs. He runs. He books a ship headed the opposite direction of Nineveh and decides to run from the call that the Lord has put on his life. Let's read the word of the Lord together this morning. Jonah chapter 1 verses 4 to 16. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. They cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Thus ends the reading this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. For your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. (coughs) Pardon me. I fled him down the nights and down the days, I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears I hid from him, and under running laughter, upvisted hopes I sped, and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears. For those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, Deliberate speed, majestic instancy. They beat in a voice more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. The name of this poem is The Hound of Heaven. It was written by Francis Thompson and published in 1983. or Sorry, 1893. Those are a little different there. These were just the first 15 of 182 lines in this particular piece of work. But they set the pace and the direction for the rest of the poem. The hare, the rabbit, running for all its worth, being pursued by the hound of heaven. And that's what we see in our text this morning. Jonah, the prophet, is the hare, running to the best of his ability from the God of the universe the creator of the land and the sea, the hound of heaven. By the end of of verse 5, Jonah is as far away from Nineveh as possible. Nineveh is a landlocked city to the northeast, and Jonah is lying in the bottom of a boat, wrapped in a deep sleep, bound for Tarshish, a city across the sea to the west. And there's a a part of us that, that understands why Jonah is running. The Ninevites are a cruel and horrible people. They have twisted morality, they have abused power, they are evil. And yet, Jonah's running is not just about Jonah's unwillingness to go to Nineveh. Jonah's running is about his unwillingness to let God be God. Jonah is reluctant. He is unwilling to see people as God sees them. He sees the Ninevites as sinful, immoral people, people who deserve punishment, not grace. They are not worth calling to repentance and faith. They, They are not worth saving in the eyes of Jonah. By running, Jonah shows reluctance to God's sovereignty. He thinks that he can thwart God's purpose and plan. He thinks that by running from, by avoiding to the best of his ability God's call, that he can put a stop to God's will. Jonah is reluctant to God's sovereignty. Sovereignty, you know, another word that we don't, we don't use all that often in our everyday life. It means supreme power or authority. It means that nobody has power or control over you. If you are a sovereign nation, it means that other nations don't get to tell you what to do or how to govern your people. You alone have that authority. If you are a sovereign God, it means that your plan and purpose, your authority and power are absolute. That his authority and his will are absolute. He is not under anyone else's authority. He is not forced to take direction from anyone. He is God. He is the authority. He is sovereign. And so denying God's sovereignty... Preferring shadow to light, comfort to struggle, his own destination to that of the one that God has called him, Jonah remains cocooned in a belief system that protects him from expanding himself and from ministering and preaching the saving word of God to others. Are we like Jonah reluctant to let God be God? Are we reluctant to God's sovereignty? Do we struggle with the scandal of grace? Do we rebel against forgiveness? Have we wrapped ourselves up in a belief system that protects us from having to be uncomfortable in our faith and in the mission we have been called to as individuals in a church? Have we insulated ourselves from those that are too different from us, from those who hold different beliefs from us, from those that make us uncomfortable, that don't fit the mold of what is acceptable and what is proper? Corey Ten Boom, a woman who was captured by the Nazis in World War II for harboring and protecting Jews, and was sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp where her sister passed away before the war was won and everyone was sent home, returned to Germany to speak on forgiveness. She writes that the truth that these people most needed to hear in that bombed out land is the message that God forgives. She gave them her favorite illustration on it. She said, when we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever, she says. The people in the room to which she was speaking just stared at her, barely hoping to believe it was possible. And then they filed out of the room in silence. All but one man. This man in his overcoat and brown hat, Moved towards her, and it all came back to her in a flash. And no longer was he wearing an overcoat and a hat, but a blue uniform and a visored cap, with its skull and crossbones. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrook. Corey and her sister Betsy had walked past this man, naked and embarrassed, forced to soak in their shame. In the camp where this man had been a guard, Corey's sister had died. And now here he is in front of her. And he thrust out his hand and he said, A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it. From your lips as well. Fräulein, the hand still extended out to Corey, will you forgive me? What is Corey to do? She has just spoken on forgiveness. But it is one thing to speak to a silent room of people who you know need forgiveness for the horrors that they have witnessed and participated in. And it is something entirely different to visit, to bestow that forgiveness upon someone who has visited those horrors upon you. She knows what God wants her to do. She knows the mission that God has called her to. But she is reluctant to do it. She is reluctant to take this man's hand and to forgive. And so I ask again, are we reluctant to let God be God? Are we reluctant to God's sovereignty? Maybe the person we are struggling to forgive, the person we are struggling to proclaim the gospel to, the person we are struggling to have grace upon is not the person across the aisle, but yourself. Are you running from God this morning? Maybe you're running from the call He has put on your life because it is an uncomfortable one and it doesn't fit into your plan. Maybe you are running from the mission that God has given you because you don't feel qualified or you don't feel anything for, you don't like the people to whom you have been sent. Maybe you are running from God because you don't feel worthy. You feel like your sin is ever before you. How can you be used in mission when you struggle to accept the scandal of God's grace and forgiveness, not only for others, but for yourself? In our own way, we each run from God. Isaiah 53, verse 6a makes that clear when the prophet writes, All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Each of us denies the sovereignty of God by doing what we want instead of what God wants. In our own ways, each of us is the hare, the rabbit, running from the hound of heaven. In our own ways, each of us is Jonah. And how does God deal with Jonah? How does God deal with the cocoon that Jonah has gone to sleep in, the denial that Jonah is practicing? What does God do? He sends a storm. The Hebrew word that translates here as send more accurately translates to hurls. God hurls a storm. I don't know if we have any bowlers here. I'm, I'm not a very good bowler. Every once in a while, I have a decent game, but more often than not, I get so far behind in points that there is no hope of winning. And so my game devolves into how fast can I throw this ball down the lane and how far can I make those pins fly? When I was growing up, we would sometimes go to this automated bowling alley, which was great because at the time, most of the lanes were still paper and pencil and you had to actually do math to tally your scores. I never won those games. But at this lane, they tallied it electronically for you. And what's more, they had a speedometer that showed you just how fast you were throwing the bowling ball. And so eventually it came to the point where the score didn't matter as much as the speed of the bowling ball did. And so there are my friends and I hurling bowling balls down the lane as hard as we could. And that is the picture we have in the Hebrew in our text this morning. God isn't just sending the storm, licking a stamp, sticking it on a letter, and putting it in the mailbox. He hurled the storm like it was a bowling ball flying down the alley. But there's a big difference between my bowling ball and God's storm. My bowling ball is being hurled to show off how strong I am and to cause as much destruction when it makes contact as possible. The storm that God sent to Jonah was not sent to cause destruction. It was not sent as a form of punishment. If that were the case, we wouldn't have this story. Jonah would have died on that boat along with the captain and her crew. Instead, we see a boat that just thinks it's going to break due to the storm. It doesn't think it can handle a storm like this one. And yet she stays together and above all the waves. God's purpose for the storm is not punishment or destruction. No, instead, the storm is God's way of pursuing Jonah. Jonah. As Jonah flees, God goes with him in the storm. The prophet, <laughs> he can't get rid of Yahweh. He cannot hide, travel, sleep, or put himself in, situation, in such a situation that God will give up on him. He cannot make God give up on his purpose. Though he is reluctant to God's sovereignty, God is sovereign just the same. The author of, of a commentary that I've been using, his name's Reed Lessing, had this to say about the storm that Jonah found himself in. He writes Often we are tempted to see a storm of life as punishment, when really it is often a tool used by God to soften our hearts for a hard conversation. It is often a tool used by God to soften our hearts for a hard conversation. For example, after Job's prolonged suffering, God answered him out of the storm wind. Yahweh instructs Elijah to stand on the mount before Yahweh as the vantage point from which the prophet witnesses a storm that corresponds to his own vocational crisis of faith. As if to underline Jeremiah's stormy anxiety in his prophetic vocation, he speaks of the storm of Yahweh, breaking on the heads of the false prophets. In all of these instances, the outside storm corresponds to an inner struggle of faith. And from the storm, Yahweh speaks. God will not quit. From the storm, Yahweh speaks. As Corrie Ten Boom stood there, her former jailer standing before her with his hand outstretched and his request for forgiveness still hanging in the air, she was caught in her storm. She fumbled with her po- pocketbook instead of taking his hand. He would not remember her. She was one of thousands of women that were at that camp, but she remembered him. She remembered the leather crop that had once swung from his belt. Corey relates that it couldn't have been more than a few seconds that they stood there. He with his arm outstretched and she fumbling with her purse. But that it felt like hours and as she wrestled with the most difficult thing that she had ever had to do. For she had to do it. She knew that. She whose sin had every day to be forgiven, knew that she also needed to forgive, and as she stood there with coldness clutching her heart, she said the one thing that she could say. Silently she pleaded, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, she thrust her hand into the one that was outstretched before her. And as she did, she says that a healing warmth spread from their joining hands into her whole being. And she said loudly and firmly, I forgive you, brother. I forgive you. Out of the storm, Yahweh speaks. I don't know what storm you are going through this morning. I don't know what storms will come your way. In the life ahead, or what storms you have weathered in your past. Some of the storms that rock our lives and threaten to destroy our boats seem totally unfair and uncalled for. Some of us have been victims of abuse. Some of us have lost loved ones much too soon. Some of us have had to deal with sickness. Many have had to deal with depression and anxiety. As these storms rock your world, know that you, they are not sent because you are deserving of punishment and God wants to bring destruction to your life. And know also that out of the storm, God speaks. For some of us, we're doing our best Jonah impression and we are running. <laughs> Maybe we are running because we don't want to do what God is calling us to do. Maybe we don't want to forgive. Maybe we don't want to be part of a ministry or mission. All of that just sounds like it's too boring or lame. You know, it doesn't doesn't pay enough. It means that we have to have hard conversation. It means that we have to actually care about our neighbor and talk to them and, and eat with them. Or maybe this whole grace thing is just too scandalous. The world doesn't deserve the good news of the gospel like Nineveh. They need to burn. And so like Jonah, we run And then, like the sailors on the boat, when we are confronted with the truth of God's purpose and power, we still try to deny Him of it. And we grab oars and we row. Or we take things and we we throw them overboard. And yet nothing we do is enough to deny the authority and the power of God. The storm of God's sovereignty, His plan, and His mission will not be denied. God will not quit. His mission will be accomplished, and we see this in our text this morning because of the storm that God hurled at Jonah. The captain and the crew of the ship were saved. It's just, it blows my mind. God sends this storm to Jonah, and his heart isn't changed by it. In fact, he thinks he's winning. He says, All right throw me overboard. I'll die. Then the storm goes down and Jonah's like, I mean, I'm dying, but the word isn't getting to Nineveh because I'm gone. So I'm going to win anyway. And then, and then here's God who changes it. He doesn't speak to Jonah out of the storm. Jonah's heart doesn't change, but who does he speak to? He speaks to the captain and he speaks to the crew. God uses the storm to turn the hearts of those around Jonah. God's purposes will not be denied. God will not quit. And maybe some of us are running because we don't know how God could possibly use us, broken and sinful people that we are. How could God forgive all that I have done, we wonder. How can he use someone as flawed and messed up as I am, we ask. I have run from him. I have failed in doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I am unworthy of his love and so incredibly undeserving of his grace. And so caught up in our feelings of unworthiness, of our brokenness, we run. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind in the midst of tears I hid from him in underrunning laughter. Up-visted hopes I sped and shot, precipitated, adown down-titanic glooms of chasmed fears for those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, Deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet, all things betray thee. Who betrayest me. Whom wilt find thou to love, ignoble thee? Save me, save only me. All which I took from thee, I did, but take, not for thy harms but just that thou mightst seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies is lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. Halts by me that footfall. Is my gloom after all, shade of his hand, outstretched caressingly, ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. In his explanation of the poem, The Hound of Heaven, J.F.X. O'Connor writes this. The name is strange, and it startles one at first. It is so bold, so new, so fearless. It does not attract, rather, the reverse. But when one reads the poem, the strangeness disappears. The meaning is understood. As the hound follows the hare, never ceasing in its running, ever drawing nearer in the chase, with unhurrying and unperturbed pace, so does God follow the fleeing soul by His divine grace. So does God follow the fleeing soul by His divine grace. And though in sin or in human love, away from God, it seeks to hide itself, divine grace follows after, unwearyingly follows ever after, till the soul feels its pressure Forcing it to turn to him alone in that never-ending pursuit. God does not quit. His grace does not end. God's pursuit of you is everlasting and unwavering. He does not grow tired or faint. His sovereignty cannot be denied, no matter how reluctant we are to accept it. And nothing you have done or will ever do can cause him to love you less or lessen the pace of his pursuit. Amen.